It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Greetings and welcome to 2021. This is David Moses, host of Moment of Truth, and you are listening to Moment of Truth, our first show of the new year. And I want to thank you all for your continued and past patronage, listening to Moment of Truth right here on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And... You know, my producer, Andrew St. Germain, who is with me today on the show, and it's such a pleasure to have Andrew St. Germain with me here on the show. Andrew, say hello. Happy New Year, David. <laughs> Thanks. Same to you. Thanks. You know, and, and Andrew, you had made a suggestion to me, and you mm-hmm. said maybe it would be a great idea to introduce the show, you know, looking back at 2020, thinking about the future of what's what we can look at towards doing in, in this year. And I, I thought, you know, that is really a, a great idea because of the year we've had, even though it felt more like 10 years in so many yes. ways, right? <laughs> and, and I thought that is a great a great way to look back and think about these things because we did cover a lot of important issues and we certainly will be looking forward to covering many more in the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I look back, you, you, were, you were saying, what are some of the things that, that come to mind when you think about the things we did here on Moment of Truth in 2020? And, you know, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, I think we did some great interviews uh, covering COVID-19 and specifically the virus itself and the vaccines. You know, we had some great guests on talking about both of those things. And it was important, I think, because we were so unsure about the vaccine and how it was going to roll out. What does that mean? There were a lot of questions around that. And there were just as many questions around COVID-19 itself. How is it going to affect people and, and all of those kind of things? And as we saw, even up into the last uh, little bit of 2020, it changed. It, you know, it morphed and it became something else, as we saw in Britain. And it's now spreading around the planet as well. Uh, but fortunately, it may be a little more uh, 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 contagious, but it's not any more lethal in that regard. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's the good thing about it. And we're going to have to follow that story as, you know, continuing into this year. Would you agree? It's not going to go anywhere. And uh, my highlights all came from, so there was the COVID pandemic, but then there was also the discussions on race and mm-hmm. policing. Yep. And we were right there as well. And those are a lot of my not favorite interviews. They're not things that you enjoy talking about, but they're things that you feel remiss to talk about. Right. So talking about cops and, and policing and, and what it means to defund the police and also the talks about, you know, how people want to be referred to and how oh, yeah. just gender, gender, but also everything about identity. It's you said on a, a recent episode, once you know, you can't say you didn't know. Oh, yeah. So just about knowing better and doing better. When you know better, you do better. And uh, that's what I liked to, uh, about last year's shows and what I hope we continue doing with this year's shows. Well, let's certainly hope that once we do know that we do become better and not uh, bury our heads in the sand or, or, you know, be an ostrich and put our heads back in there and try to avoid what we, what we have learned. And, uh, you know, as we as we go forward, you know, I'm glad you mentioned all of those things. They were important. Black Lives Matter. You know, that was uh, the frontline workers, uh, you know, as we think back uh, and, and as well, you know, some of the other, those other things that we did, which I think are important leading into this year as well. And as we go forward, and that is the, the show Rebellion and, and David Suzuki that we did. Um, I thought oh, that yes. was a great show. Great, great guests, as well as not only David, but the, the two guests that we had on uh, after that. Um, And that's so crucial to me, as you know, because I believe that as we go forward, we definitely want to focus, I believe, 
on the climate and youth. Those two things, I think, are, gonna, are going to be crucial for us to move forward. We have to think of the youth. The youth have made a statement. They've told us how important the, the, uh, the climate is. And it's, it's important to everybody, but it's their future. And we, we need to do something for them. We need to step up. We need to keep this in the forefront. So I'm really looking forward to, to uh, you know, banging those uh, drums uh, a little louder, I hope, as we go forward. Uh, Tanya Talaga was a great interview, I think, that we did. And Mike Downey, right, is another documentary that we did and had to go back to uh, also the COVID situation with, uh, with the Diamond Princess. That, that was a great show. These are all guests that I would gladly have on once a week. Mike <laughs> Downey, Tanya Talaga, and David Suzuki. Yeah, They were true highlights. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And, of course, we did cover the U.S. election, um, and that was, that was important to do as we, uh, as we, we needed to cover those things, as, as we said. Um, and it's not over yet. Uh, it <laughs> it's isn't. Inauguration Day is weeks away. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. So there'll be more to talk about with that. And who knows what, uh, what the outgoing president may still uh, have up his sleeve to try and, uh, you know, uh, just keep us interested and keep the story going forward in that regard. And I guess the other thing about the climate crisis and youth that I mentioned was what have we learned from COVID-19? What have we learned from this last year? And and thinking differently. You know, I hope that we have learned to think differently. And once this this vaccine has rolled out and we've been inoculated or, you know, there's, there's that herd immunity that has been garnered uh, throughout the population, that we... You know, we don't just go back to what we were doing. I don't think we can. It's like what, were you, just, what you just said. Once you know, you can't go back. But yes. you, at least you can't, you can't say you didn't know. And, and I hope that we, we start to think differently. And, and I, I hope we can get guests on that you know, can share that and, and try to push us in that direction as well. And, of course, the vaccine, uh, you know, Andrew, is, is still going to be an issue. Well, yeah, masks were mm. are still an issue. Yep. So uh, vaccines are just masks that hurt. <laughs> so like <laughs> that's, uh, of course, going to be a contentious issue. Yeah. Andrew, I'm really glad you suggested we do this. And uh, I, I hope that our our listeners have enjoyed what we just uh, shared with, with them uh, in terms of looking back. And I hope it gives them something to think about for themselves, as well as uh, give them some sense of what we're going to be doing as we enter this new 2021 year uh, here on Moment of Truth and bring some more exciting shows to them. Absolutely. And it's the principle of Indigenous teachings to think about seven generations ahead of you. So I think that's really at the core of what we do on Moment of Truth. Absolutely. Nicely said. Nicely said. A nice way to leave this little segment and launch into our first guest of the year. And uh, we're, so we're going to take a short pause, are we, and then come right back? Or are we going to go right into the guest? Oh, you're going to let me do it? Sure. Okay, when we come back, we're talking COVID-19 virus immunity with Dr. Tania Watts, our first guest of 2021. Nice. Don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. On the show with us today, we have Dr. Tanya Watts. She is an immunologist at the University of Toronto, doing her research with 13 people who recently recovered from COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Tanya Watts right here on Moment of Truth. Welcome. Thank you for having me. 
Well, COVID-19 has certainly presented many things to us, so many questions. We're into the stage now where uh, the vaccines are starting to roll out. But you did some some interesting research on taking the blood cells out of 13 people and uh, to to look at them to see how they would uh, be stimulated, I guess, for the memory of uh, of the COVID-19 virus and to see if they I guess what that means by having the memory of to see if they would then be able to defend themselves against it. Is that kind of roughly what you're looking at to see? Yes. So after people recover from infection, Normally, um, they're better able to respond the next time they're exposed and Mm. prevent the infection. Um, And this is done with um, because we produce antibodies, but also because white blood cells called T cells and B cells also um, expand in number during the first infection and more of them stick around to rapidly respond to the reinfection later to prevent the second infection. And it's the same thing that allows vaccines to work. So what we really have done is really just the first step and said soon after people recover from COVID, we looked at people four to 12 weeks. um, If we take their blood cells, can their white blood cells respond if we give them pieces of the virus to mimic a reinfection and do they get a response? And the good news is everybody had a response. However, there were some differences from, uh, say, conventional responses to mild flu. We found that there was a bit more inflammation and less of a kind of cell called a killer T cell that kills infected cells than we get with flu. So now that study's done, we've got a kind of an initial snapshot. Now we want to know what happens over time. We're going to follow some people over the months to follow to see how long that immunity lasts. And of course, we're all very interested once vaccines rolls out, how the vaccine induced immunity compares. I'm actually hoping it's better and uh, also how long that lasts. Yes, and, and thank you for uh, mentioning that. This, uh, this study that you did is pre-vaccine uh, that has, is now starting to uh, be distributed, correct? That's right, yes. The vaccine is kind of an ideal way of giving just part of the virus, the S spike, the part that it usually uses to attach, so we can really focus on the immune response on preventing first that attachment, and then also getting really good um, responses. Whereas if you have the actual infection, viruses have ways of evading the immune response. So we think that that's why a vaccine might be a better immune response. And that remains to be determined over time than uh, the COVID-19 infection-induced response. I understand these new vaccines are also a, a, a newer kind of vaccine as opposed to what we've had in the past. Yes, so the first uh, um, vaccines approved from Pfizer and uh, already approved in the U.S., Moderna, are what are called RNA vaccines. And so we've never actually had a licensed RNA vaccine before. There have been um, clinical trials, small trials in them before. Um, So it is a new kind of vaccine, and it looks very promising, actually. Yeah. Now, something you said very interesting there about uh, the white blood cells that are produced to help defend the body against infections, uh, much like this uh, COVID-19 one, for the recovered people— you, you, and this goes for any any person. The the white blood cells get produced that will help fight off the disease. And uh, are you said they they hang around or they stick around for a while? What what does that actually mean? Like a couple of days? Okay. <laughs> oh, let me explain that a little better. So the first time you're exposed to a new infection, 
maybe one in a million white blood cells in your lymph node might be have the right specificity to mm. recognize that infection. Mm. But then during the actual infection, they divide and make many, many copies of themselves and go out into circulation to eliminate the infection. Mm. Afterwards, a lot of them die because you don't need them anymore. Mm. But as some of them stay behind, we call them memory cells. Mm. And they will, in some infections, they last a lifetime, like smallpox or polio. Once you had one vaccine, it lasts you a lifetime. Yeah. And so you have this immune memory. So if you got re-exposed, you wouldn't even know it. It would just eliminate yeah. the infection before you got sick. Um, with SARS-CoV-2, we don't know if it gives lifelong immunity. Probably not because seasonal coronaviruses don't. So mm. we need to track how long that lasts. You know, just on on the, the the body itself, our human bodies, and what you were just describing about how the, these cells that are developed to help defend us, and we wouldn't even know if we got infected because we have this lifelong immunity to some things. It's quite fascinating, isn't it, about our bodies and how they can produce these things for us and and uh, just just do it. Yeah, I mean, the immune system's fascinating. It's very complex, lots of cells and molecules, but we, you know, we really need it. And uh, mm -hmm. most of the time, we don't know it's working um, unless we get something really new and, and difficult like uh, SARS-CoV-2, the uh, virus that causes COVID-19. Right. Now, it, you said that, as you said, we don't know if uh, we're going to have lifelong immunity. Uh, you know, it's one of the questions I was thinking about when, when this whole thing came up around developing a virus uh, for COVID-19. Because every year, of course, you mentioned the influenza, and every year we have the option to go out and get a, a flu vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. They promote it. They say, go get your flu shot every year. And I, and I was wondering, well, the flu hasn't arrived, and, they, and it does. It changes every year. It's something new. It, you know, uh, how do they know what to protect us against, first of all? And if they can do that, how is that any different than, say, this new, a new virus like we're getting with the COVID-19 one? Right. So influenza. So most viruses, actually, when they infect, they carry a copy of a gene that's going to help them copy their own genetic code. Mm. And um, influenza has a very sloppy version of this, whereas humans have a very they copy their DNA very carefully. They correct it. Mm. And so flu uh, mutates rapidly. And when we start to develop antibodies, there's this selective pressure to mutate. So the antibody count binds. So that every spring, or about every February, the WHO looks at what strains are circulating in, in at the end of the uh, season in the Southern Hemisphere and recommends to the Northern Hemisphere, as their winter is going to come up in six months, um, what, what strain of flu. So vaccines to flu have to be reformulated often. And the other thing flu does is it comes in eight different genetic segments. So every once in a while, you can get two different flus infect the same species and reassort. And then when that happens, ah. we get pandemics. And we had that in 2009. The most famous flu pandemic was um, 1918. In 2009, we had a reassortment of four different viruses and we got a new strain. Now, co coronavirus is different. It only has one gene segment, so it's not going to mix and match. Right. Um, I the first evidence suggests it mutated more slowly than flu. And I think that's still true, although we've now heard in the news that there's a, a new variant that's yes. um, spreading rapidly in the UK. Yes. That's worrying. I, to me, my mind, this is another example of why we have to social distance, because if you let the virus go through the community, even among people who get mild disease and recover, 
the longer you let it spread, the more chance it has to mutate. Um, and these mutations are random, but if they make it infect better, that one's going to take over and be the one that spreads. And so we really do have to make sure we try to limit how much virus there is in the community because we're allowing it time. It's further adapting to humans. So this virus jumped to us from, we think, bats based on how similar it is to the bat virus sometime in late 2019 in China. And the more we let it circulate in human the more random mutations it's allowing it to adapt to spread. So. Uh, Dr. Watts, how is this uncommon, what we're seeing with this new new infectious uh, strain? So, you know, at this point in time, is this uh, quick in terms of a, of a you know, a turnaround or, or a strain development? Or is this was this to be expected, do you think? I'm not sure if anything is to be expected because it's so new, but we know with influenza that sometimes our vaccine is very good, but Mm. sometimes we get a vaccine, it takes six months to make it, and then by the end of the season, the virus has changed. So we know viruses can do that. And of course, every time you get infected with a virus, you make millions and millions of copies and they have random they can have random mutations and if that random mutation kills the virus it dies out but if it makes it better it continues uh, or if it doesn't mm. change it so the the more this um, pandemic spreads to more people and we're talking about um you know i can't remember the total number now but it's a huge number of, of millions of people around the world the more chance there is for mutations to accumulate And it would have been nice if those mutations had caused it to fizzle out, but it doesn't look like that way. It looks like this latest mutation is actually allowing it to adapt better to human spread. Mm. Now, I remember hearing something about how in the past, what we've learned from history in terms of pandemics and and how these things develop. Uh, if we go back to 1919, the Spanish flu, which I understand there, there was no vaccine ever developed for that. It eventually just sort of fizzled out. It, it, be, it did, I think, um, uh, 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 transform into different strains, but I believe it got weaker and weaker and just fizzled out. Is that... Well, I think, yeah, what happened, so the the original 1918 flu, and incidentally, they didn't even know what flu was then. They didn't Mm. isolate the virus till Ah. 1934, Ah. but it went in three waves. And I think by the time it was finished, about a third of the world had been infected. And then I guess more people became immune. And um, but that's that strain circulated. It's it's an H1N1. And we still have H1N1 flu circulating to this day. It's just very, very much drifted in sequence from the original. So we've never completely eliminated it. And then sometimes we get new introductions of flu because flu's natural host is wild uh, geese and birds. So we'll never completely get rid of it in the wild. So it's always going to be a threat, which is why it's another Another topic, trying to get a universal mm. flu vaccine. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think um, it, it it eventually, as enough people became immune, and it was a it's a normally flu is a seasonal virus spreading in the winter, but during pandemic years, it spreads spring and summer as well, and that's what we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2. It's a respiratory virus, which usually are worse in the winter because the dry air allows further spread. But in this case, because there's no immunity in the community, it's it uh, continued through spring and summer. Yes, yes, right. Uh, do you do you how do you, how do you think this might affect things from a vaccine perspective in, in terms of the uh, this new strain that we're seeing coming out of Great Britain? 
Well, so far, um, we don't know in, in detail, but um, the vaccines are all based on um, taking the gene for the whole spike protein, which is quite a big protein, and um, expressing that. So it gets expressed in your cells and you can make antibodies. And if they bind to the place where it attaches, those prevent infection completely. But also your white blood cells called T cells can recognize bits of the spike. So the hope is there's enough of the spike left that didn't change that your immune system will still recognize it. The other, if, if it does actually change and we find that it's evading antibodies, the very good thing about the RNA vaccines is they're really quite easy to formulate. So I can imagine them making a new sequence very mm. quickly and introducing that now that they've got the manufacturing process, but they would still, like we do every year for flu, we have to um, reformulate and then they have to just do mini trials to make sure they're still safe. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Tanya Watts. And we're talking with her about some research that uh, she did uh, with the University of Toronto. And I believe, uh, Dr. Watts, you, uh, you had a, a team of people and... Uh, in particular, you worked with uh, one other one other uh, professor or doctor on this? Yes, yeah, so Dr. Mario Ostrowski, who's also an immunologist and an infectious disease physician, was um, uh, my collaborator in the study and in particular important in recruiting the recovered patients. And uh, two groups worked together to do the research on this paper. Mm. Uh, were there any surprises that you found in doing this, this research that you, you did with the 13 uh, people? Well, as I mentioned, um, one of the things that we found is that a kind of uh, white blood cell called a killer T cell, which is very important for eliminating infected cells, we found less of those and more of the other kind of T cell called the helper T cell than we did in flu infection. So that concerned us that maybe um, the immune response to this infection isn't quite as efficient in eliminating uh, the infected cells. And then we also saw that the um, some of the molecules secreted by the T cells, there were more of the inflammatory molecules than we see in flu infection. And actually, that's interesting, but it also correlates with a number of other studies that came out looking very early in people who were more severely infected, they have more inflammation. So we think our study says some the response of the T cells may contribute somewhat to the inflammation and why it makes um, this disease worse than uh, seasonal flu. Um, and so the hope is the vaccine will, will prevent infection rather than allowing people to get this inflammatory response. You know, what you're talking about there is way over my head. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's interesting because it makes me wonder about a few other questions, such as when you say inflammatory, uh, a cell, is that, are you saying that it's the inflammatory reaction is what our what we're feeling in our body uh not necessarily the virus itself it's the reaction of the cells reacting to it and creating that in inflammation yes yeah, so when you get a viral infection um your immune system as well as your cells say in your nose and throat they have little sensors inside that can detect an invasion by a foreign species like a virus. Mm. And they send out alarm signals, which are molecules that then 
call in other immune cells to rush into the site to help eliminate the infection. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they can overshoot and give you severe inflammation. Ah. And that's what seems to be happening in this very severe cases of COVID-19. And so in our study, we were looking specifically at one kind of cell called a T cell, and we were showing they also contribute some of these inflammatory molecules. Interesting. Now, the other name you mentioned was helper, a helper cell. Now, does that is that a helper for our body or is it a helper that helps the virus? No, it's basically we I mentioned the killer cells yes. that kill infected cells yep. and then another kind of cell the helper cells, they help those B cells make antibodies. I see. And uh, they also help um, secrete molecules that recruit in other cells to help fight the infection. So it's just a Um, just a name for them that we use. But basically, our immune system is quite complex. Many different cell types contribute to the infection. And and immunologists, we're trying to really break that down into individual components and understand which parts are playing an important role in protection or damage, because it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Mm. You need to protect against the invasion, but you get this collateral damage like you do in a war. And that's where you need the right balance to clear an infection without damaging your own body. Right. Uh, Dr. Watts, do we have any idea about why, for instance, certain viruses or or certain cells will last uh, for a lifetime, whereas other ones don't? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's a, a question that a lot of immunologists study to understand how you what controls whether you get lifelong immunity or whether it just lasts a year or two. And uh, we don't know in detail yet, but that initial interaction of the virus and the immune immune system really sets the stage for what happens in the long term. And so understanding that in detail will hopefully lead us to understand um, why some immune responses are long-lived or short-lived. But we don't have a a definitive answer yet. Mm. And the other thing you mentioned about you know how um, the the uh, north and southern hemispheres uh, are studied in terms of what's circulating or what's going around. Uh, for instance, uh, what we're what we're in the midst of winter in the northern hemisphere, and uh, and so they'll be looking uh, to the to, in the southern hemisphere about what to expect might be coming their way in terms of influenza for the next season, and vice versa as it circulates. How do these do these things circulate? By air, do they circulate as you said earlier through through uh, birds? Um, how do they how do they get back and forth around the around the globe from from northern southern hemispheres? So regular seasonal influenza can only spread from person to person. Every now and again, you know, um, for example, in 1918, 1968, uh, 2009, a new species will jump from birds, perhaps through pigs to human. But in the regular seasonal flu, viruses don't live outside. They, they need to be spread from person to person. They live a short time on surfaces, but not indefinitely. And so it's really thought that, you know, people, um, it's so flu seasonally is a winter virus. And that is because the cold, dry air allows the droplets to stay in the air longer. And when it gets warm and humid in summer, they're heavier and they'll drop further. So you have to be closer together in summer than in winter to catch flu. So that's why with normal seasonal flu, it's mainly a a fall and winter disease. And so right now, this is the season when we'd be getting flu and then it would um, tend to... um, 
move to the southern hemisphere as their uh, fall picks up and so and vice versa. So that's why we look to one region to see what's coming down the pipe for the next reason. But ultimately it has to spread between people. And, you know, people travel a lot and it's very difficult to stop the spread of viruses around the world. Mm. You know, I, I never quite understood the, the rationale between winter and, uh, and germs and, and how we, why it was always in the winter and the fall when we seem to get these, these influenzas. And why I was going, why is it the winter? <laughs> Through my, my simple uh, sort of thinking process, and I'm glad you explained how the colder air suspends them in the air longer so uh, they can spread easier because they hang in the air longer. Uh, you know, my simple, my my thinking was uh, at some point I thought, well, they're they're looking for a warm host. They're just <laughs> because it's cold outside. <laughs> well, also I should say that we also crowd indoors more yeah. in the in the winter as well. So it doesn't mean you can't catch something in the summer. It's mm. just you have to be closer together. And so in the winter, um, in particular with seasonal flu, we'll see the uptick in around November, and it goes till. Yes end of March. With a pandemic, though, where there's no immunity, we're not seeing that seasonal um, fluctuation as much. So, and although we did see wave two in Canada really start to pick up in October when we yeah. started to go indoors more. So. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, of course, your, your comment about how they are spread person to person uh, makes perfect sense because we we have a, a perfect example of that and, and it's a horrible one and that is when we think about the uh, Europeans coming to North America for the first time uh, you know as they started to explore what was then called the new world and the devastating effects that uh, the diseases they brought over to the First Nation communities and how it devastated uh, the communities here. Yeah, that was terrible. And actually, uh, for reasons we don't fully understand also that the indigenous First Nations people are very susceptible to flu. Um, they did, uh, whole communities were wiped out by 1918 flu. And this is why that we're so worried now about um, SARS-CoV-2 getting into the remote First Nations where there's less um, medical care and also could be high susceptibility. Really, that that's quite fascinating. Do you think that has to do with um, the fact that perhaps there is less time exposure to some of the some of the diseases that were circulating in Europe and other areas prior to contact? Yeah, I'm not really sure, but certainly when the first uh, you know Europeans came, there was you know a lack of immunity, and that was the problem. Yeah, right. And so, um, yeah. Oh, and and so as we look forward now, if you look down uh, the pipe a little bit into the future, the, the the vaccines are coming out. We have this new strain that is possibly circulating, and hopefully we can get that under control. Um, and of course, the vaccines are going to be hopefully distributed as quickly as possible. Um, we've seen also that there are some, I guess, some mild. Uh, reactions to some of the virus vaccines in some people? I heard something about allergies. Yeah, I think there's been a, a handful of allergic reactions. I think that's typical with any vaccine, mm. which is why whenever you go for a vaccine, they always ask you to stay for 15 minutes right. just in case. We do that for the flu vaccine as well. Yep. Um, my understanding is the people who did have allergic reactions were those who were prone to those kind of uh, allergic reactions to the vaccines and they were ready and they treated them and, and they recovered. So um, it's something that um, health agencies have to monitor as you roll out a new vaccine to make sure it's within the sort of normal range we expect for vaccines and that um, 
there's not severe adverse events because the clinical trial looked at, um, you know, let's say 40,000 people, but once you give something to millions of people, the more rare events could show up. Right. And so what will you be looking for doing in your research in your next steps? Our next steps, actually, um, we've got a group of people that were generous enough to donate blood both shortly after their recovery from COVID and then six to eight months later. So we're Mm. analyzing that data in the next few weeks. And then a few months after that, we'll get them back again. So we're trying to follow how long immunity lasts. And we're actually just trying to figure out now as the vaccine rolls out in Canada, we'd really like to compare people shortly after the vaccine and then over the long term. We know many groups around the world are doing this, but we think it's really important to have replication of results and different groups of people studied to really mm-hmm. confirm them. Yep. And um, the I, I saw the word blood plasma um, being potentially uh, used. How, how does that figure into this? Uh, I think early on there was a suggestion that if you took the plasma from people who had recovered from SARS-CoV-2, perhaps their antibodies could then be transferred to someone else. Yes. Um, The problem is it's uh, it's not as safe to give, you know, whole plasma from one person to another. And a number of biotech companies have now developed monoclonal antibodies. That means antibodies of a single specificity that can neutralize the virus. So that's what they gave to um, President Trump, Mm. um, these cocktail of antibodies that could block the virus. So I think that's a more likely, although it's a very expensive approach. Vaccination is much cheaper than having to make lots of antibodies and give them to people. Right. It would be great, I think, to, to touch base with you again later on in the year once we have a sense of how things are going and, and once you get more results about what you're doing, uh, if, you, if you're up to it, to, to be able to share your, your new information. I'd be very happy to. That would be great. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you about this and uh, all the best with your, uh, your new uh, testing and, and research. And uh, we'd certainly look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you. My pleasure. And that was the voice of Dr. Tanya Watch. She is an immunologist at the University of Toronto talking to us about her research uh, with 13 people that uh, gave gave them blood. Uh, They had recovered from COVID-19 and they wanted to see if they had a memory of the COVID-19, which would allow them to then defend themselves against that if there was a future uh, infection. Always a pleasure having you listen to our show each and every day, and that is this part of the show. Please don't go away. We will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Stephen Huang, and he is with the Unity Health Toronto, and he's here to talk about uh, something that he's heading up, a research project uh, through Unity Health Toronto, having to do with uh, COVID-19 and the homeless population in Toronto. It's a research project that I guess the government of Canada is also putting some money into to try and find out about how the homeless population is affected and uh, and how it also is affecting the, the this high risk and disadvantaged population now apparently um it's news to me but i'm not guess i guess i'm not really surprised but about 
235,000 Canadians experience homelessness every year. That's a good-sized good city if you were, were to put them all together. So, uh, Dr. Wang, uh, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. You know, you know, I understand, has recruitment started on this project at this point, or is it still in the process? Uh, we're going to be starting recruitment uh, in January uh, among people experiencing homelessness in Toronto. Okay. And how many people are you looking to gather for this? We're going to be recruiting about 700 people uh, who are going to be uh, randomly selected so that they are a representative cross-section of mm. the population. So 700 people you're going to recruit, you're going to do some, some testing. You're, you're going to look for, you're going to test for the, the virus, but you're also going to look for people that may have recovered as well, I understand. Yes, absolutely. The the one question is uh, what proportion of people who are homeless have already been infected and how many are still vulnerable to infection? And now the other thing out of this is you're looking to see because of shelters and, and homeless shelters, specifically, I guess, in the winter months when people gather in the shelters to keep out of the cold, these shelters are places where the virus can spread more easily. Yes, absolutely. They're they're Shelters are, are almost the ideal place to spread uh, something like the coronavirus with people uh, uh, close together and living, sharing uh, eating and uh, uh, bathroom facilities. So they are high-risk facility uh, situations. And, and certainly one question is uh, whether or not uh, there's been uh, uh, more spread in some shelters than in others. And... And what is the idea behind the government and this task force, the immunity task force that was formed, and, and, and what you're doing to you know, hopefully do something with this information? Well, the original uh, goal of the task force and studies like this was to understand the rate at which COVID uh, is spreading in the Canadian mm. population and then in specific uh, so-called hotspots or high-risk populations. Mm. Uh, I think now that we have the vaccine, it really, this kind of information would help us to prioritize uh, groups that uh, are, are at highest risk based on uh, the percent that have already been exposed. Mm. Uh, for example, we know that people in long-term care facilities or nursing homes are at extremely high risk. Um, but uh, when you look at other high-risk populations, we don't really know how many uh, have already been infected and uh, uh, the extent to which uh, they should be prioritized to get the vaccine. Uh, if I can ask a, a general question, if, if someone is exposed to the COVID-19 virus and they recover, how does the, how does the body, how do you recognize that in someone? So uh, we're able to recognize that by doing uh, serologic tests. This is uh, using a blood sample to allow us to look at antibodies that the body makes in response to a coronavirus infection. Using uh, a, a tiny sample of blood, uh, less than uh, one milliliter, we can actually tell if someone's been infected. And we can also distinguish in the future when people get start getting immunized, we can distinguish between who has had infection with the virus and who's been immunized against the, uh, the infection. Right. Okay. Dr. Wang, you are a leader for someone in this area of, of dealing and looking at the homeless population in researching and housing and health. Uh, how, how did you get started in this? What drew you to this area? 
Well, uh, as a as a physician uh, specializing in in internal medicine, uh, I uh, wanted to use my uh, skills to help those who are most disadvantaged and who often have the least access to uh, to appropriate healthcare. So I uh, started out as a physician for people experiencing homelessness, and then realized along the way that research was incredibly important uh, to identify longer term, larger scale solutions to the problem. So uh, even though it is super important to help individuals one-on-one as a clinician, but it's also uh, perhaps even more important to address the underlying issues like homelessness itself that drive uh, uh, illness. Mm. In terms of the homeless population um, and and exposure to germs such as COVID-19 and those kind of things, exposure to to germs, exposure to the elements, does that help them in terms of having a more robust immune system in general? Or am I just thinking way off the mark here? Well, uh, we don't think that the exposure uh, is the the driving force uh, in terms of people's immune systems. What we know is that um, uh, the uh, stress of being homeless and Mm. of extreme poverty does have uh, adverse effects on the immune system and probably make people more uh, uh, prone to infection. Mm. But I think that is probably an even larger factor here is the fact that we... What COVID has demonstrated is that people's housing situations have an enormous impact on their health, and it's primarily through the uh, effect of crowding. Mm. When when we have people who are uh, housed and living together in in crowded circumstances, and that might be families living in uh, crowded apartments or uh, people who are homeless living together in shelters, that increases the risk that uh, uh, viruses like COVID-19 will spread more rapidly. And so I think that what we're really seeing is the uh, a demonstration of the fact that it's really social and, and environmental factors that are driving risk of infection. Mm. And so once you, you, you have these 700 people together that you get your tests from, you're going to do your analysis to find, uh, one, if they've had the virus, uh, and, and two, um, once you, you gather all that together, what do you hope to do with that as you move forward in this study? Well, uh, first of all, uh, we hope that it will help uh, people working with uh, the shelter system to uh, identify uh, uh, hot spots of infection and uh, uh, control, uh, uh, increase efforts to control the spread of COVID-19. Secondly, we hope that our uh, data that we get will help us prioritize efforts to immunize people experiencing homelessness uh, uh, and to do it in a way guided by by evidence. We, we uh, ironically, those who are at this is a group that is at highest at very high risk, but also is probably going to be among the more difficult to uh, uh, get immunized. So I think having uh, a study that allows us to track our progress in this specific population in terms of uh, immunization will be very helpful. Mm. 
You now, of course, we, we've recently seen in, in Great Britain that a new strain, um, something that is more uh, easily transmitted, I, I've heard the number about 70% more easily transmitted, uh, has, has uh, come up, it's transmuted and changed. Um, do, we, can, do we expect to see that kind of thing happen with this virus? Well, it, it is certainly something that is expected with any virus. Um, uh, as of this moment, we're not, we don't have definitive data on what this particular mutation will mean in terms of uh, future spread. Uh, but we have to be on guard against this and, and be vigilant because there is potential for uh, a mutation to mm. uh, make the virus more difficult to control. Mm. Fortunately, uh, all of the uh, current evidence uh, at the moment suggests that what uh, that the, this mutation simply makes it more easy to spread, and uh, but that but the but the interventions that we currently are encouraging people to take are probably uh, equally effective. So just masks, physical distancing, and hand hygiene mm. uh, will uh, help prevent the spread of this virus. Right. Now, one of the other things that you're going to do with your data is you're going to create this computer simulation model. Now, that, it says, is going to be able to help you make projections about the transmission of COVID-19 in the population. How is, how is the computer-generated simulation model different than what we just see naturally in, in happening out there uh, on a daily basis? Um, well, so uh, usually the projections that we see when people talk about what we need to do in order to control uh, uh, the virus and prevent uh, worst case scenarios, those are projections or models based on existing data. Uh, and certainly we have that data for the general population. We know what percentage of uh, how many cases are being identified and what percentage of people who get tested are positive, but we don't have that for the homeless population right now. So one of the goals of this study is to give us uh, 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 hard statistics or uh, re reliable numbers on the rate of infection in this population, which we currently don't have, so that we can uh, build those models. Uh, right now, we have the, the right the information for the general population, but not for this subpopulation. Mm. How do you how do you see this um, helping us in terms of not only the homeless population but also the general population? Um, well, I, I think that what uh, what we've discovered with COVID nineteen is that um, uh, although it, the 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 virus uh, affects different populations unequally and tends to strike those who are racialized or uh, working in uh, uh, essential jobs uh, more than those who are not, uh, we also know that uh, this this perpetuates the spread and the uh, difficulty in controlling the virus in the population overall. So if we're going to control COVID-19, we have to make sure that we are uh, controlling it for those who are most at risk. Just uh, an, uh, as an analogy, if we want to control the COVID-19 through vaccination, we have to ensure that those most vulnerable are vaccinated, most at, those most at risk. We can't just uh, have it go to those who are, um, you know, have the easiest access to health care. Right, of course. 
How difficult will that be to to vaccinate the homeless population, do you think? Uh, it's going to be uh, an enormous challenge. I think that uh, there are a couple of factors here. One is the um, uh, just the, the, the mobility of mm. the population in terms of ensuring that they get the, the series of two vaccinations. But yes. probably the greatest challenge is going to be overcoming people's distrust mm. a, in, in the healthcare system and encouraging them to, uh, to, to uh, have confidence in the vaccine and be willing to take it. Because people who have been traditionally marginalized or, or sometimes ill-treated by the healthcare system uh, don't trust it the way that those of us who are more advantaged do trust. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Stephen Huang. He is the uh, study research director of the MAP Centre for Urban Health Solutions, uh, Unity Health Toronto. And he's one of the world's most renowned researchers in homeless housing and health. And he's he's here with us on the show to talk about the covenant study that they're working on to uh, recruit about 700 people in the homeless population in the Toronto area, and then uh, have them uh, looked at for what if they've had if they have already had COVID, or uh, and 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 then study them uh, to find out how uh, we can help. Uh, with the homeless population in terms of protecting them against the COVID-19 um, uh, virus. And, you know, I guess the other thing, Doctor, I'm thinking about is, you know, you talked about some of the challenges of immunizing them uh, with the virus. You mentioned about the trust in, in uh, the health system. Uh, their mobility is another uh, question that comes into place as well. Um I, the other thing is how accessing them in general. Does that mean that that the task force or unit or the the the, the immunization uh, process is going to have to go to them? Uh, yes, I think that most definitely this is going to require a, a broader effort by uh, the healthcare system and by organizations uh, that specialize in providing care for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, and to go out to shelters, to hotels where people are staying, and to encampments, uh, working with uh, experienced providers who have relationships of trust with these individuals. Do you, do you think that there may be a time where we might be able to provide a sort of mobile uh, immunization areas for, for the homeless? Uh, yes, that would be ideal. I mean, I think that certainly uh, there's going to need to be uh, mobile uh, teams that uh, transport the, the vaccine and uh, offer it at sites, just as we are, are going to need to do it in long-term care facilities. Mm, right, of course. Now, the other thing is that once you have gathered this information and uh, in order to help the homeless population, uh, deal with the kind of transmission that you're talking about that shelters provide for this very very quick and easy transmission of COVID-19. What kind of recommendations do you think you'll be making in the future? 
Well, I think that once we get through the current crisis and have COVID under control, I think that the real challenge before us is to uh, address the problem of homelessness itself. Mm. Uh, COVID has uh, demonstrated the high cost of uh, of doing nothing for homelessness. Mm. We've we've left people to stay in shelters and uh, in encampments, uh, and and kind of accepted that for years. And now uh, with the with the pandemic, it's just caused enormous. Uh, 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 challenges for the healthcare system and for the shelter system. So there, there really has uh, been an unrecognized cost for uh, allowing homelessness to fester. And uh, I think that this is an opportunity to look at what we're doing and try to ensure that every person in Canada has a home. Mm. You know, I, I know that there is, a, a, I guess, a small percentage of the homeless population that that likes to be homeless. Um, I've, I've heard some stories about people, they like uh, to be off the grid, I guess. They like to be uh, out there on their own and just uh, uh, dealing with their own life on their own terms, I suppose you might say. The trust element seems to be a big part of this. Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, evidence suggests that there's a very small uh, pr- percentage of people who are homeless who actually would prefer to be homeless rather than have their own home. Uh, perhaps uh, in the order of five percent or less. Um, the I think the the question is uh, 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 certainly that there are people who would much rather sleep outside in an encampment than in a shelter. Uh, given uh, and, and that's actually not an entirely unreasonable uh, uh, choice to make, given uh, the the risks of staying in a shelter. So I think that the key is to create. Op- options for people that are um, more more uh, palatable than than sleeping uh, in parks and uh, on the street. Right, doctor. Once you have gathered the information and you've uh, put this all together, uh, will you be working with uh, other units similar to your own in in terms of other cities, other areas across the country, perhaps uh, around uh, North America, to to look at this this situation and and issue with homeless people? Uh, yes, and certainly I've been in contact with colleagues in across the country in cities like. Vancouver, Calgary, and Ottawa, uh, to about uh, because we're they're all uh, struggling with similar issues to the one that we're uh, addressing in Toronto, uh, and we do hope that the information from our study will help uh, inform efforts in cities across Canada. Uh, I think that the challenge will be, uh, of course, that um, while the research data is going to be very helpful. Uh, each community will need to develop its own process to uh, roll out the vaccine and engage with the homeless population. Mm. Doctor, is there anything you can think of that we haven't touched on that you feel is is important to mention? Um, uh, no, I think it's just really important for people to realize that um, uh, uh, some of the populations that are at greatest risk for COVID-19 are also those that have um, the least access to healthcare. And that it's really important that we think about mm-hmm. fairness and equity when we respond to this uh, pandemic. 
Yeah. You, you know, I, I mentioned the number off the top of the show about 235,000 Canadians experiencing homelessness every year. Uh, that is, as I say, if you put them all together, that's a sizable city. And um, does that surprise you about the number of people that are homeless? Well, unfortunately not. Homelessness has been a a persistent and and really troubling problem across Canada for the last uh, three decades. And and certainly the uh, uh, unless we do something uh, significant to try to increase the availability of affordable housing, uh, uh, we won't be able to get that number down. So I think it really is important for us to uh, uh, look at approaches to just ensure that people can have a roof over their heads. It sounds like what you're suggesting there is that we we need to take a, a good hard look at our our the way we structure ourselves, the way we structure our cities, and and uh, and I guess our lives uh, because we're 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 forcing some part of the population uh, out of the availability of, of like you say having a roof over their head. Um, absolutely, I think that in a country as um, as uh, uh, affluent and as uh, prosperous as Canada, we should uh, be able to ensure that everyone has uh, uh, a home to live in. Mm. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you. That's the voice of Dr. Stephen Huang. He is uh, at the Unity Health uh, Toronto, and he is heading up a, a study, a covenant study, that's going to provide crucial information on how the problem of SARS-CoV-2 is within the Toronto's homeless population. And he's uh, heading that up, and they're hoping to provide invaluable evidence to guide public health interventions across the country uh, preventing COVID-19 in the high-risk population. It's been a pleasure having him on the show, and... And it's always a pleasure to have you listen to our show each and every day right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.